the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Joined by my friend Archbishop Charles Chaput of Philadelphia. Hello, Archbishop. How are you? I am just fine, Hugh. How are you this morning? Well, I'm troubled. Uh, you know, in our in our many many conversations over the years, I've reconciled with the fact you're a Steelers fan, an Eagles fan, a Broncos fan. But until I read your new book, um, uh, Things Worth Dying For, I did not know you had a Detroit connection. You're actually in. (laughs) I did not know the Michigan stuff until this. So I want to get that out of the way for people. We started high. Let's go low. You go back to a governor general of Detroit. You're partially responsible then for Detroit being in the union. We could have left that with Canada. I I imagine so. But I didn't have anything personally to do with that. I was just blessed with good ancestors. I was fascinated, actually, by your family history and the point that you make about why we love it. Give people a little sense of the name Chaput and where it comes from and how far. I had no idea. I had you pegged as the Potawatomi Indian, the tribe member, first Native American archbishop, all that stuff. Didn't know about Louis the Thirteenth, Henry the Thirteenth. Actually, it was Louis the Ninth. Louis the Ninth, a, a saint. He was a saint in the in the Catholic Church. Uh, on my mother's side, uh, we have an ancestry that goes back into France uh, very clearly. But uh, one of my ancestors was Robert Navarre, who was the governor general of Detroit. And one of his sons, uh, I guess, became a fur uh, trader and traveled down to uh, Indiana, what is now Indiana, where he met my great, 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 six times back uh, grandmother, who was a Potawatomi Indian. Her name was Angelique Ketchkway. And uh, their family eventually was removed from uh, Indiana, uh, ended up in Kansas. And that's where my French-Canadian grandfather uh, uh, met uh, his wife. And my mother was born. And that's uh, my uh, connection to Detroit. I like that chapter a lot. In, In fact, at dinner last night with Bud the Contractor, I was recounting your genealogy and preparing for this interview. And I said to him, I think older people, and I'm included among this, uh, love genealogy because it reminds us that we have long paths and we have long futures in the form of our children and our descendants and our collateral descendants and the world. So if you look backwards, you're actually looking forwards. And that's why you recounted it, including whether or not uh, you're related to St. Louis. I don't know, but you don't know. But it's fun to think about. And people are now focused on it. And it's important. I tell my law students, Archbishop, on the first day of class, you didn't get here. You're in a law classroom, and there are two stories, the stories of your country and the stories of your family. And we talk about that because everybody gets here by a long line. Yes, uh, I think it's important to mention our country, too, because our country is our ancestors on another level. And if we don't know uh, that ancestry, our country's in trouble, just like our family's in trouble if we don't know our ancestors uh, biologically. Now, Archbishop, that brings us to the book. This is the third in a trilogy. I'm holding up my very well-thumbed copy of 
things worth dying for. My four-page outline, last night it was five pages. I got it down to four, so we're going to take a long time talking about this. But things worth dying for, I described it on Twitter as a summing up. Is that fair? Uh, in some sense, it is. I, I imagine I have some life left, so there are some more things to go on. But it's uh, in some way, people ask me, when did I begin to write the book? And uh, in terms of the book itself, probably uh, two years ago already. Uh, but in terms of the overall picture that's involved in the book, a lifetime, 76 years now. I think all of us who write and give talks like you do, uh, base that on a, a lot of material that we're not even conscious of that's been part of our life uh, through the years. Your library must be immense. And I don't know what you're going to do with it. I don't know what I'm going to do with mine. But I have, I read in uh, Things Worth Dying For, a lot of authors that I do not know very well, like Roger Scruton, I just don't know anything about him. I, I've seen him read oh. and referenced. You rely heavily on him, for example. Let's take a diversion, as I often will in this. Tell us about him and why you love him so much. Well, Roger Scruton died uh, last year, I believe, in right. 2020. And he, he was British, of course, and uh, reflected on uh, history and culture and philosophy uh, in a way that was popularized by some of the television shows that he did. And uh, I, I find him fascinating because uh, I think he presents in language that's uh, easy to understand. And visuals, when it comes to his, uh, his videos, uh, very important parts of what it means to be a human being. You know, he's, uh, he's uh, in a very contemporary way uh, immersed in what we call the transcendentals, beauty, truth, and goodness. And uh, those are the three things that make life worth living, you know, things that are true and beautiful and good. And if we dedicate ourselves to uh, embracing a life that involves those uh, three characteristics, we're going to be very, very happy human beings. If we don't, we're going to be unhappy. In terms of my library, I gave it away already when I moved into uh, retirement. I gave most of my books to the seminary here in Philadelphia. I have reference books, of course, I brought with me. But uh, I've moved to a Kindle in terms of reading, so I'm not collecting books in in the present like I collected books in the past. You know, I, I'm glad someone wanted them. I read. I have to read a hard copy. I have to annotate it. I have to make notes in the margin yes. place and go back and do an outline. So when I give them away, some people don't like them. Things worth dying for is in demand. People always want my books because they're free when I'm done with them. And I'll I'll find a good Catholic friend to give things worth dying for. But I want to stay on Scruton for you. a second. When I went back, a good book leads you to other authors. And so I went and read up on him. He went to Jesus College in Cambridge, and then he taught at the University of London. And his life was one great struggle with the current culture. And so I found that very interesting. And given the previous books you wrote, Strangers in a Strange Land, Render Under Theater, and now Things Worth Dying For. This is a book very much about fighting for what you believe in and for what Catholic Christians believe in specifically. You are not at all tremulous in urging people to witness their faith. Well, you know, one of the things that is considered a um, negative factor is referred to somebody uh, today, refer to somebody as a culture warrior. Um, but I've always, people talk about me that way, and I've never actually understood why it's an insult. They mean it. <laughs> when, they, when they call me that, they mean it as an insult. But I think that anybody who lives life seriously is in some ways a someone who's fighting for um, important principles upon which to build life. And culture is the combination of all the things that make up our lives. So we should all 
all be culture warriors. Moms and dads are culture warriors when it comes to their children. You know, so it's a very positive thing and nothing to be ashamed of. And, you know, again, fight, fighting is not a popular thing to talk about these days or a warrior culture uh, because uh, you know, military, military life and activity isn't considered in the same kind of way it used to be even 40 years ago. But I, I think I, I don't believe in violence. I think it's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, unless it's violence in the service of the good, the true and the beautiful. But we still have to be willing to fight for things. And I, I want to make sure in every segment that we do, I, I pronounce the key finding in the book. Uh, and I want to do it from page 21. Jesus of Nazareth really did live. It's Holy Week. It's important to say this. Archbishop Chaput says, Jesus of Nazareth really did live. He really was the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. He really did suffer and die and rise for us. And the proof is the fire he left in the hearts of those who knew him, a passion that reworked the course of the world. It is Holy Week. Unless people accept that premise, things worth dying for will not make a lick of sense to them. I don't think so. I hope it's very much based on Jesus and the scriptures. Of course, a lot of it's based on the Old Testament, as you know, by the Jewish scriptures, because we who are Christians consider the Jewish people our elder brothers and sisters, and we stand on their shoulders. Uh, But that's the the foundation of my life and the life of uh, uh, people from whom I came. And I'm grateful for that gift. I'm grateful that you made it very explicit. I want to play for you the clip in 30 years of radio, I tell people this is the most astonishing exchange I had. And okay. it's with R- Richard Dawkins, uh, the, uh, the anti-belief expert in Great Britain. And we're talking, and here's what he says. Okay, do you believe Jesus turned water into wine? Yes. You seriously do? Yes. You actually think that Jesus got water and made all those molecules turn into wine? Yes. My God. Yes. Okay. My I- God, actually, not yours. <laughs> so, Archbishop, he kind Good of... For well, no, but he summed up the attitude that you talk about and things worth dying for. We are living in a culture that is increasingly, it's not just postmodern, it's not just post-Christian, it's hostile to Christianity. It's hostile to Christianity for a lot of reasons. I think primarily because Christianity, if lived faithfully, challenges, uh, challenges a lot of the givens of our culture that the culture is very attached to. Uh, for example, um, you know, human life and uh, marriage, as we understand it, as Christians, uh, is not respected very much in the culture of the United States today. Abortion is accepted in a common kind of way. And the meaning of marriage, of course, has been changed very much and even dismissed. People aren't marrying like they used to. They're not having children at all like they used to. Uh, And uh, lived Christianity challenges those kind of basic things of life, you know, the meaning of life itself and the meaning of family, the, the two things that are at, at the heart of who we are as individuals and as communities. And because of that, the, the church is under attack all the time in very unjust ways by people who don't really understand the church. Uh, family is at its center. And I don't know if you organized your chapters. You put the World Family Conference that you oversaw in Philadelphia right at the center of your book, Things Worth Dying For, sort of a capstone of your ecclesiastical career. And it did what it was intended to do. It elevated family as a key part of Christian life. Is that the thing of which you are proudest, Archbishop, of your work? Uh, It certainly was an extraordinary event, and uh, I'm deeply grateful to the people of Philadelphia who made it even possible. It cost a lot of money at a time when we were really broke as a church, 
And it took hours and hours and hours of thousands of people putting it all together. And of course, we're grateful to the Pope and the people in Rome for making Philadelphia the center of this uh, this gathering. And I'm, I'm happy that Pope Francis came for it. Uh, would it be the, the most important thing I've done in life? I don't think so. I think that baptizing a baby is more important than any of that. And uh, witnessing a Christian marriage is more important than any of that. Forgiving someone's sins and confession is more important than any of that. All those things, so who's going who's gonna to remember the world meeting of families in a few years, but they'll remember the baptism of their child and the marriage of their spouse. Okay, um, I'll pick so up on that because it was a big public witness of faith in the United States. That's why I liked it. Uh, it, it was an ex- 800,000 people. Is that how many people turned out on the day that you and Francis went through town? At least that many. I was blessed to ride along on the Popemobile and see all of them. And they were really uh, an incredible crowd. Well, what it what it said to me, what it should have said to the entire United States is do not underestimate the deposit of faith in the United States. And I think well, it's that, much bigger true. than D.C. culture and elite culture. One of the themes of things worth dying for is that elite culture has to be resisted. Is that a fair statement, Archbishop? I, I certainly agree with you 100 percent. I think that elite culture is the most worrisome part of the culture of our time. And why is that? Because it's it's uh, arrogant and because it, it uh, is uh, in the process of trying to lead our country in the wrong direction in, in so many ways. Um, you know, it, it's the greatest threat to our country from the right or from the left. I've been absolutely convinced throughout my life uh, that it's from the left. You know, I, back when I was a younger man, uh, before I became a priest, even when I first became a priest, I would be much, I would have been much more sympathetic with the liberal side of things. But as time has gone on, I've seen that that leads, has led and continues to lead people in the wrong direction, both in terms of personal development, but also in terms of the, the, the basic values of our country. You wrote your book to be understood, Archbishop, and I, I, I did at the end of it, I do what I normally do when a book of popular philosophy is in front of me in popular history. What were you aiming at? What, what impression did I take away? And my notes at the beginning, general thought, The Archbishop is content. The Archbishop is not disappointed. The Archbishop is concerned, but he is not gloomy. He knows the immense work to be done, but it's been done again and again. How do you like my summary of what your book left me with? Uh, Well, I hope all those things are true. I don't know if I'm one of those uh, top intellectuals. And you forgot to add yourself to that group. (laughs) I'm a talk show. (laughs) Well, we're proud that you're an intellectual, though. You're a conservative intellectual and even though you are an unusual kind of Catholic, since you're a Presbyterian Catholic, uh, you're a very good Catholic, and we're very, very grateful to God for that and Thank proud you. of you. Um, I am a bit more um, disappointed about the way life has gone than the book would uh, indicate, I think. I'm worried very much about the future of our country and the future of our Catholic Church um, and Christianity in general, of course. Uh, what I, I, I'm a person of hope. I, your, one of your guests this week talked about hope not being a good strategy. Well, I think it's a necessary strategy for uh, people who are believers because uh, we trust that God's going to bring all this to a, a good conclusion in the end, even though we have a lot of indications it's not going in the right direction. So I hope that the book does encourage people to recommit themselves. And in order to recommit yourself, you have to have some kind of hope whether that's in a marriage or in the job or whatever, hope is kind of a, a fundamental strategy for living life to its fullness. 
Hope gets hope Christian across the river. Uh, you know, Pilgrim's Progress is a book that has eluded me forever. I've tried, I've started it 25 times, Archbishop. I've never finished it. Uh, the language is just not. C.S. Lewis, I love the Lewis. I'll read Chesterton. I'll read Tolkien endlessly. Pilgrim's Progress, I'm glad you summarized it because I've never finished it. But you have Christian the Pilgrim on the gates of heaven. He has to get across the river, and his last friend is Hope. That's right. And uh, I think that's necessary for all of us. Uh, even when we're on our deathbed, I think we have to hope that things are going to end up all right at uh, that passage from this life to, to the next one. Uh, by the way, I show your your uh, under, your uh, difficulty with uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It is a difficult book for modern people to read because of its style. But a lot of the classics are. You know, yeah. I, I tried to I tried to reread. Um, uh, which one was it? Uh, Count Monte Cristo last year. And found it very, very difficult to read, even though I loved it when I was a young kid. And I read yeah. it. Uh, my uh, my taste in books has changed. Well, you are you are a lover of history as I am, and I think that that comes through. But you also read a lot more church history than I do. And before we go to break, and we'll come back next hour, what what is the emphasis on church history? Why do you think that's so important for even laymen to know? Well, uh, we need to know that the church, we, you know, we Catholics have a unique understanding of the church in the Christian community. I don't know if many Protestants would refer to the church as Holy Mother of the Church. Uh, people see the church as a community of believers, uh, important to their lives. But for Catholics, the church has an identity apart from a particular time and place that she really is our mother from whom we receive life. And because of that, it's important to know the history of your your family, your your mother. And uh, in, we've had difficult times in the church in recent years, you know, the sexual abuse scandal, for example. But if you understand church history, you see that the church has recovered from horrible kinds of experiences like that in, in the course of history. Uh, the, in some ways, the worst being the, the uh, Protestant Reformation, where the church was deeply divided and remains divided uh, because of that. Uh, so reading history helps you not to repeat it if, you, if it's bad history and also to have some kind of hope and consolation if things aren't going really smoothly. And we you learn know, the, from people who are smarter than us. You know, people in the past are sometimes smarter than we are. Yeah, the, the great, the lowest point of the book, but it's not the low point of your life, is going to the synods, three of them, the first one good, the second two not so good. And you remarked that you were scandalized at the conduct of the synod. And I want people to understand that's not exactly new in the Catholic Church, right? Machiavellian politics in the church go back a long time. Yes, but, you know, people uh, like myself don't expect that to be the case. So I, mean, I really do have an idealized expectation around church and especially the church at the highest echelons. And, uh, and having become a bishop, I've seen that that expectation is not ever met and that uh, sometimes uh, the things we idealize uh, are just as uh, incompetent as we are ourselves. And, uh, you know, it, it really was, as you say, Machiavellian, my experience at the two most recent synods that I attended. When we come back, stay tuned, America. When I talk at length with the Archbishop, uh, we're going to be talking about death and dying, thoughts at the end of a career as you've got 10, 20, 30 years left of life. Uh, the road ahead is a lot shorter than the road behind. Archbishop Chaput does it all in this book. 
things worth dying for, which I strongly recommend to all of you on this holy week. Uh, the reading that you might want to do if you didn't do anything during Lent, right here. Things worth dying for. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Hugh Hewitt for townhall.com. If House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi seems desperate in her partisan maneuvering these days, it's because the House that she now leads looks like a lock for the GOP in 2022. The party of first-term presidents usually lose seats in the midterms following their inauguration. President Obama's Democrats lost 63 seats in 2010. In 2018, President Trump's Republicans lost 40. Redistricting will take place in the course of the next 18 months throwing a wrench into the gears of prediction models, but one that favors Republicans. The GOP has the advantage here. The Brennan Center reports that Republicans will enjoy complete control of drawing new boundaries for 181 congressional districts, compared with a maximum of 74 for Democrats. Yes, gerrymandering for political advantage has its critics, but both parties engage in it whenever they get the opportunity. The bottom line is this. The Democrats' meager nine-seat House majority is likely to evaporate in the midterms. Look for California's Kevin McCarthy to be the House Speaker in 2023. It can't come soon enough. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.